Welcome to Nannyog's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 16, Soul Music. Sweet 16. Yeah, Soul Music is, in fact, the 16th Discworld novel published in 1994, so we are officially in chronological order. So from now on... When we say it's episode 16, it's the 16th novel. 17, it's the 17th novel. How does that make you feel to finally be in publication order? I don't know. I don't know how I feel. I like, I like the, the vibes of having it all over the place. <laughs> well, at this point, it just doesn't make any sense to go out of order because you're very well established in the characters, in the different threads that are in the disc world. I don't feel like I have to trick you into liking it anymore. So it is, however, the third death novel. So this is... But this is not episode three, listeners. No, not episode three. So I was looking for adaptations of this. And from what I could find, there have been three adaptations. One is was an animated adaptation produced by Cosgrove Hall Films for Channel 4 in 1996. And it definitely leaned more into like the musical 1950s, 1960s musician parody or satire that we get in this particular novel. The soundtrack was actually released on CD. And I'm actually curious to know if it's on streaming anywhere. Like, I kind of want to listen to the soundtrack. I'm excited to, to check that out. But there were two other adaptations. They were specifically stage adaptations. One was in 2014 that was performed at the Rose Theater Kingston by Youth Music Theater UK with Andrew Doyle and music by Craig Adams. And there was also a state adaptation by the Durham Student Theater by Ook Productions in 2016. So that was the same group that tweeted at us about the Mort production. They also did soul music back in 2016. Oh. So few adaptations. This seems like a really interesting one to adapt. Just did a cursory search on, on Spotify there, and I can't find anything for solo music that isn't just like people's fan or like own made playlists that are called like old soul music and stuff. The problem with this title is that it's it's kind of a pun on soul because it's specifically emphasizing the death aspects of this book. Mm. But the term soul music is, of course, used for like a couple of different varieties of music and genres, and it all comes from kind of the same place, which is soul music. So I even even if you Google the title of this book, it's like you have to put Terry Pratchett after it, because you'll just get a lot of different things if you just put in soul music into mm. Google. Soul music is also a great... Um, it's the title of a French song by Ben L'Oncle Soul. I go through periods of like listening to French music aggressively. Mm. Uh, this is a really good one. This one's just like, I am what I am. You know, I don't have all these things that famous people have, but like, I'm me, I'm happy. So quick summary of this novel. Susan Stohelit has always been a logical, if mysteriously gifted child. The universe has a certain order and most people are just too obtuse to see it. But when a skeletal rat and a talking raven show up in her room to tell her that she is death's granddaughter and he has gone missing again, everything changes. She must take on Death's scythe, so to speak, just as the scene in Ankh-Morpork is due for a music with rocks in Shake Up. What were your first thoughts of this novel, Nigel? 
I'm going to be honest, I didn't enjoy it as much as previous death books. Yeah, I gave it like three stars on Goodreads, which feels slightly like heresy, but I just wasn't vibing with it. I, I'm not entirely sure what specific stuff, but there was a lot of stuff that I felt was just kind of like rehashed over from like moving pictures and Reaper Man. It felt like it was kind of a conglomeration of the two and that a lot of the plot beats were, you know, kind of the same. And especially like how the, the plots functioned, you know, with like, in regards, you have the death plot, and then in this one, it's music with rocks in, and before in Reaper Man, it was like, it was the malls thing. They felt slightly dissonant. This one tried to draw in more to, you know, like, between the death POV and the, like, Ankh-Morpork scene. The only link between the mall plotline and death in uh, Reaper Man is where he shows up to claim Wendell Poons at the end. Mm-hmm. But this one, like, you know, there's more oblique kind of references with, like, you know, Susan seeing Buddy Holly. I'm not over that. Why? Why is he got <sighs> Buddy Holly. Ooh-wee-oo, I look just like Buddy Holly. It's, it's, this is the first <laughs> Weezer reference on the podcast. Ugh. I do not think Terry Pratchett had heard of Weezer at this point. In fact, I'm not even sure Weezer existed no. yet. Oh, imagine that, a time without Weezer. 1994, they would have just released their album the same year as this book was released. So he had probably not heard of them. Okay, well, I do have a question for you, though, in regards to that. Uh, And it's this. What's with all these homies dissing my girl? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like if he had known about Weezer, there would have been a reference to it in this. Because there's reference to pretty much any other kind of music song artist what have you in this book that was fun actually that was a part i really enjoyed like i listened to a lot of music and i grew up like i'm pretty sure i mentioned this in the first monkey episode i was on where like the first music i ever got on cd was johnny cash's greatest hits the beatles greatest hits volume one and queen's or the beatles number one's volume one and queen's greatest hits volume one and so, like, I would always, I'd always, like, grown up around 80s music and stuff. And then, like, I know this is more 50s and 60s stuff. I progressed onto that when I was, like, slightly older. So that was fun. And it does it in a way which is an awful lot better than other books, which try and bring in, like, music references. I'm thinking Kings of the Wild by Nicholas Eames, which is an egregious, egregious book. But you've never heard a book described as egregious before. Egregious. That is, a, that is quite the description. Yeah, I think I gave it the same rating as Soul Music, bizarrely, but like I gave it, but it was more like the two and a half rating. This was like, this is solidly a three. My opinion for for what it's worth of Soul Music is that there were a lot of parts of it that I liked, but I think the parts of this book are greater than the whole, because I think you're right that it is very similar to Moving Pictures and Reaper Man, but with music. I mean, there's even, like you said, some of the same plot beats, like uh, Cut Me On Throat Dibbler being the manager, or although that does make sense for his character, but it is the same thing that happens in moving pictures. Uh, and like you said, yeah, like the no wizard's trying to figure out what's going nephew. on. Yeah, exactly. There also seemed to be a bit of a retread of Mort. However, I actually thought that that 
was pretty successful because this book is a lot about death's family in a way that I don't think previous books had really, really gotten into even more. Of course, we also get Susan out of this, which Susan is one of my all-time favorite Discworld characters. Oh, she's great. Yeah, she's wonderful. So for me, the death stuff and the Susan stuff worked really, really well. But the music with Roxanne, like parts of it were great. And I loved the music references, but it didn't really add up to anything that felt new. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. What do you want to talk about first? The death stuff or the music stuff? Um, Death stuff, maybe. Okay. Let's start Because I there. really enjoyed that. I enjoyed that like it harkened back to Morton. It was very much like like Morton and Isabel are dead at this stage, right? Right. I mean we actually get their death at the beginning of the book. Yeah. I was like, oh. And then the whole like Susan having to come to terms with like why death let them die, you know? Right. Especially after like she goes back and sees him flip the you know, the timer over you know, the the scene at the end of Morse. And so, like, that was really emotionally poignant. And then the fact that, like, there's a line at some stage I didn't notice on my digital copy, I don't think. But, like, where they get to the end and there's the carriage accident at the end. And it's like, well, it was always meant to end this way. Mm. In this kind of, like, cyclical. I really enjoyed that. And for an introduction to, like, Susan as a character, I think it works spectacularly well. Because, like, we're introduced to her as she is, like, not fully grown. She's not an adult, but she's like, you know, a competent, capable human being. Yeah, she's 16, but she feels a lot older as a character, which some 16-year-olds do. You know, like, they're the ones who are actually the adults in their family, <laughs> so to speak. They've given her, like, a proper character arc, and then the fact that she needs to, like, step in and be death while also, like, having qualms about, like, the ethics of what death does. You know, she says, oh, she would have done it better and she would have been fairer. And then I'm thinking of, like, you know, Death says at the end of Mort, there's no justice, only me. Mm -hmm. Because Susan doesn't know that she's Death's granddaughter at the beginning because both Mort and Isabel were afraid of the way that she seemed to belong in Death's house. And so they didn't really want her... I don't know. I was actually kind of mad at Mort at one point in this book because the way it's described is that like they used to take her to see him, but then they got really uncomfortable with the way that Death and Susan interacted with each other because they thought that Susan was more comfortable with Death than either one of them were, which kind of makes sense from a like familial perspective. And like it just it really it really feels like Mort and Isabel weren't even really thinking about death's feelings, like just by being like, oh, no, you can't see your granddaughter because of who you are. I mean, like, it's probably within Mort's character, but at the same time, it's like, goddamn. You know? Yeah, like. He, like, he knows who he married into. Like, he should expect right. this. Well, and Isabel grew up there. It, it just felt like very much like they grew up, got out into the world. And then just wanted to forget that anything had ever happened with death. And I think also mm. Mort was afraid because obviously like in Mort, the same thing happens to him, right? Death kind of goes on vacation for a night and Mort gets sucked into being death, 
which we talked about in the first episode. And now it's happening to Susan, right? Because death has basically an existential crisis, which I really want to talk about. But then Susan gets sucked into this position, which is why people keep dying, right? Like in Reaper Man, there was no one to fill the position. So people just stopped dying. But because Susan exists, she is able to take on the the role of death. And so maybe Mort was afraid that that would happen if she was in death's orbit for too long. Yeah. This book really makes a big show of how maybe hurt is the wrong word for what death is like, but he like, I think he honestly wanted to be in Susan's life. And he does make a big deal about how she is his granddaughter. And like at the end when she, he asks her to kiss him, like it's just, it. Oh, there's so many like soft moments like that. Or like, you know, it was a shit swing, but I mean, he still made it with his own hands for his granddaughter. Like Jesus Christ. Yeah. And like, he makes the working bathtub with the, with the duck and like, yeah, like he seems like he's, like, is he perfect at this? No, he doesn't know how to do this. He's never done this before, but he's trying. Yeah. All through this book, death is met with the fact that, like, people around him don't really trust him. And I know he's death, but, like, like Mort, who married his daughter, wants to keep their granddaughter away from him. You know, so there's the familial estrangement. Then there's another bit which made me, like, just, it punched me in the fucking gut, where um he finds Albert's things death caught up with the rats near the brass bridge no one had disturbed albert since he was in the gutter he'd become nearly as invisible as coffin henry death rolled his sleeves up his hand moved through the fabric of albert's coat as if it was mist daft old fool always took it with him he muttered i can't imagine what he thought i'd do with it like what like albert's been there with him for ages and death still doesn't feel like albert trusts him but like, like I mean, he's so gentle. And he says, "Like, find something to put this in, and don't drop it. Don't drop it." And he even asks Albert later, like at the end of the book, he's like, "Do you still have your bottle?" Like, he wants to make sure that Albert is okay. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I I agree with you. Maybe it's like because he's deaf that people don't trust him. In fact, Susan is the person, even though she hasn't even known him for that long. I mean, she has some memories from her childhood, but she still relates to him more than anybody else does. And she's the only person mm. that seems to understand. And maybe it's because she has the same memory that he does, which there's a lot about death's memory in this book as well. Like the idea that like he remembers things that have happened. Yeah. But also like, sure, like just after that bit about Albert, he says, where is my granddaughter? You have to tell me or else I can't know. It felt very Mrs. Cake. Yeah, it felt very Mrs. Cake. But also like, I mean, it sounds mystical. But then when you think about it, that's just how information works. Right. Like, I mean... <laughs> I mean, before we before we started recording this episode, I told you I was feeling melancholy. I mean, you couldn't have known that if I didn't tell you it. Right, um, exactly. That's how, inf- that's how information works. <laughs> With Death's mind, I don't know, because he remembers all this stuff and Susan does too. Stuff that she, you know, has no right really to remember. But the fact that it's like, well, I can't know this unless there's like the agency of telling. Right, and it seems like she also perhaps shares a memory with Death. Yeah. It's not just like it's his his memory and then her memory works the same way. It's that she remembers things that only he knows, but it's filtered through her humanity. Yeah. How at the end, he's like, no, you do remember it. Like, we are the same, but because you're human, you don't, 
you don't process it the same way. It comes to you in like dreams or premonitions or visions. It's not like the black and white memory of death. Yeah. Oh, man, this book. I wish I wish there was just it was just death again. This was the same thing I said about Reaper Man. Death, of course, like you said, he has this he's grieving, right? He has an existential crisis in this book. Because mm. of the death of Morton Isabel, which I think made it even worse. Like, they were kind of shitty to him about Susan, but he's still like, like that scene where they die and he's there to take them. And then you don't know at the time that he's talking to Susan, but would you see the scene from Susan's perspective later and how he turns to Susan yeah. and says, of course, I could have done something. But and then the next scene we see is him in his study being like, you know, what is life when you when you get right down to it? Like all of that stuff was just like that hit me. Like the fact that he was grieving over his estranged family and he doesn't know what to do with any of these feelings. And so like he's trying to forget. <laughs> he's trying to learn how to forget because his memory is so unforgiving in its clarity. Yeah, but like I mean also like it's kind of a tragedy in itself when you die and the only person to mourn your passing is death. Well, and Susan, although she mourns in her own way. Yeah, she mourns in her own way. And also, like, I mean, at the same, like, they rule, they were, like, princess or whatever, right? Or they they helped out in Stohalit. Yeah, he was a duke. Yeah, duke. That's what it was. I was like, it's some nobility. Right, we do get a Queen Kelly reference in this book. Um, she kicks the the band out. She tells them to leave and not come back. Where's the royal recognizer? Do you think he went out of business when people were like, "Oh, there she is"? Like, I actually kind of thought maybe the wizard that that has Quoth was actually him, but I could be wrong. I mean, I never considered that, but it seems like, hmm, because it's like right down the road from the school which is all kind of in the same place. Anyway, that was just a thought that I had. Mm. I also thought the time travel was interesting because Susan figures out that she can go backwards to actually talk to death. And so she goes and like you said, she sees the whole scene at the end of Mort where he turns over the timer. I thought that conversation was interesting compared to the later one because remember, the death at the end of Mort has not gone through the events of Reaper Man yet. And so I feel like I feel like death has a real arc between Mort, Reaper Man, and this book. And Susan, when she talks to him at the end of Mort, he doesn't understand what he understands later in terms of what his role is, how he's supposed to relate to people and yet do his duty. Yeah, I mean, this. uh, I was trying to find a... It's just after the, you haven't got a kiss for your old granddad. Where it says, like, uh, she looks into his eye sockets and the darkness beyond, which went on and on forever. There was no word for it. Even eternity was a human idea. Giving it a name gave it a length. Admittedly, a very long one. But this darkness was what was left when eternity had given up. It was where death lived alone. He has to come to terms with the fact that he's, he's like, predicated on being constantly alone. And then this is what he learns, like, you know, what he learns at the end of Reaper Man and his position in regards to life and going, you know, in front of Azrael, Death of Universes, and, you know, basically pleading for his job back and telling them that he has to, you know, because there needs to be 
there needs to be a reaper man to reap the the grain. I think, yeah. But even as well, not to give Eric credit for much, but like, even at the end of that, where Astigfull, the demon, you know, goes the wrong way in time, and then Death notices that even at the end of the universe, life springs up. Like, these are important things that he, like, Mort Death doesn't know. I thought that was really good. She's trying to ask him questions about the job, right? But he was really struggling with what he's just done in Mort and with his relationship with Isabel and what he's becoming. So he says, I should have never adopted your mother. Why did you? Death shrugged. What's that you got there? He took Buddy's lifetimer from her and held it up. Ah, interesting. Do you know what it means, Granddad? I've not come across it before, but I suppose it's possible in certain circumstances. It means somehow that he has rhythm in his soul. Granddad? Oh no, that can't be right. That's just a figure of speech. And what's wrong with granddad? Grandfather I can live with. Granddad? One step away from Gramps, in my opinion. Anyway, I thought you believed in logic. Calling something a figure of speech doesn't mean it's not true. Death waved the hourglass vaguely. For an example, he said, many things are better than a poke in the eye with a blunt stick. I've never understood the phrase. Surely a sharp stick would be even worse. Death stopped. I'm doing it again. Why should I care what the wretched phrase means or what you call me? Unimportant. Getting entangled with humans clouds the thinking. Take it from me. Don't get involved. But I am human. I didn't say it was going to be easy, did I? Don't think about it. Don't feel. You're an expert, aren't you? Said Susan hotly. I may have allowed myself some flicker of emotion in recent past said death, but I can give it up any time I like. That is not the same death as the person at the end of this novel who asks for a kiss for old granddad. No. And he's really struggling with these new emotions and these new entanglements that he has, whereas I think the death at the end of this book understands that that's all part of the job. But it's also a death who's finally gotten some kind of, like, emotional reciprocation. Right. I mean, because like he has death of frats and Albert, you know, he he clearly cares about a lot more. And now he has Susan. Like, it's like he's figured out how to care about the thing that he has to do by getting entangled. Oh, it's entanglement because quantum. I mean, I know I said that it's like a lot of it is retread. And why does death need to have an existential crisis every book? But God damn, if it isn't re- <laughs> if it isn't relatable. <laughs> Having an existential crisis every 30 minutes, being like, ah, oh god, ah! <laughs> it me! <laughs> Hashtag relatable content. But I, I like that this was brought on by, like, needing to forget. You know, like you right. said, because of the terrible clarity of his eye. Uh, but now it's time for Nigel Quotes the Mountain Goats. Nigel Quotes the Mountain Goats! It feels like we haven't done one in a long while, although, like, we ha- it happens every episode. It happens every single episode. I, I edit them. I can attest to that. <laughs> it happens every time. I can only apologize from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> no, I, I love it. Sam is actually listening to them right now for our monkey episode, the Nigel of Science episode. That should come out in, let's see, when does this episode come out? It should come out in about half a week from when this episode comes out. Nice. Yeah, okay, so it's from uh, Raj Evocative by the Mountain Goats, or, yeah, or A-J-A, presumably that's Raja, and then Vocative, but it says, 
A bridge would have like brought the sky down, but it was useless to see it without you around, and in the unstoppable camera of my mind's eye, I saw you and some foreign guy, and I could hear your voice ringing, I could hear you singing, from all the way across the country in Palm Springs, I could hear you now. And it's all this, like, you know, being absent of someone, but the... the and I feel like that's death in this book, you know? He... All of the people that he wants there. Like, he builds a swing for Susan, but Susan isn't there to actually use it. Yeah. What, like, put me onto this song specifically is just the phrase, the unstoppable camera of my mind's eye. Yeah, like, this idea that he's trying to, like, dull his vision because he sees things so clearly. I mean, the thing about, like, there is no justice, there's only me, is that that me has to be very lonely, right? Being able to see all of this, to be so, like, unforgivingly all-knowable. Yeah. You know, like, that's lonely. That's hard. Just, I suppose you could read it as, like, it's not said in, like, a booming voice, and, like, this is a proclamation. Like, now with this context, it feels like it's desperation. You know, there is no justice. There's only me. Like, it, it it all comes down to him to make these choices, even if it is his family that he ends up, like, having to usher on. He he goes through three stages of this crisis. Well, four stages, I should say, because he goes first to the, the monk on top of the mountain, who is completely useless. And then he goes to the Clatchian Foreign Legion, because that's what you're supposed to do when you forget. And then he goes to the Mended Drum to drink his sorrows away which he eventually passes out, and then he ends up with the beggars. He becomes Mr. Scrub, right? Like, which is kind of like Bill Door, I feel like. He becomes Mr. Scrub for a short while. Yeah, I enjoyed most of it. I didn't enjoy the um, drinking to forget section. i not a big fan of like alcoholism content in, in media. Mm-hmm. But there's one line... Uh, sorry, I'm trying to find it. But it's basically like about all the people that they're forgotten. Yeah, so it's like, bugger it, bugger it, the grawny man says I, bugger it, he's a yellow gloak, so he is 10,000 years, bugger it. Really? Death relax. There were half a dozen people around the fire, and they were convivial. A bottle was circling the group. Well, actually it was half a tin, and Death hadn't quite worked out what was in it, or in the rather large tin that was bubbling on the fire, of old boots and mud. They hadn't asked who he was. None of them had names as far as he could tell. They had Labels like Stalling Ken and Coffin Henry and Foul Old Ron, which said something about uh, what they were, but nothing about what they had been. The tin reached him. He passed it on as tactfully as he could and lay back peacefully. People without names. People who were as invisible as he was. People for whom death was always an option. He could stay here a while. I think Discworld is at its best when it's, like, caring for someone. You know, who wouldn't normally like be cared for it's something that was in um sorcery you know where where rinswin is the only one to realize that coin is an abused child basically right you know so like i i, I really enjoyed that one um the clatchian legion the, like i mean there was some funny moments the clatchian legion the the bit where they kept forgetting the word forget grated a bit it felt like the the was name that the parrot says in Eric constantly. Yeah, I could have done with about half of the scenes from the Clatchian Foreign Legion. Like, I felt like that joke was hit a little bit too hard. Yeah, so, like, the beggars would be, one, like, you know, the top, and then the mended drum would be the bottom, and then I'm not sure. Wait, hold on, what's the fourth one again? That's not Clatchian Foreign Legion? 
It's a very short scene, but it's the guru at the top of the mountain. Oh, I quite enjoyed that. The sound of one hand clapping is still clap. Yes, I I quite enjoyed that, actually. So that's going to be the second one, and then the third one will be Clutch in for Legion. What's your ranking of the stages of Death's Existential Crisis? I Okay, so I liked the mended drum, but not because of the alcoholism necessarily, although I'm not convinced that he actually got drunk. What I think happened was is that he was trying to mimic drunkenness. Yeah. Because he thought that's what you're supposed to do. Because I'm not convinced that Death can get drunk. He doesn't have the bodily organs for it. Yeah, neither am I. But at the same time, he's becoming more human as he's like leaving the Death persona behind. So maybe. Maybe. But I do enjoy the librarian in the Mended Drum content. So like when where he's playing like the steampunk invaders video game in the background and screaming every time he loses a penny that stuff i thought was hilarious and so like and then death like is trying to like understand how the game works that gave me some real like good omens vibes because it's very similar to the scene in good omens where the horsemen show up and death is already there playing the the video game or the arcade game i should say in the background I love how we do this every episode. Be like, oh, this is like this scene in Good Omens. And it's rapidly becoming, well, what did Neil Gaiman actually write? There's another scene in this book that reminds me of Neil Gaiman, and it involves death. It's when death is riding the Discworld motorcycle at the end, because that is also what the four horsemen are riding in Good Omens. So, But it's also yeah. <laughs> very like Crowley in his car, you know, where it's just like slowly yes. burning up. There is a good moment as well in that. The Mended Drum has traditionally gone in for, well, traditional pub games, such as dominoes, darts, and stabbing people in the back and taking all their money. The new owner had decided to go upmarket. This was the only available direction. There had been the Quizzing Device, a three-tone water-driven monstrosity based on a recently discovered design by Leonard of Quirm. It had been a bad idea. Captain Carrot of the Watch, who had a mind like a needle under his open, smiling face, had surreptitiously substituted a new roll of questions like... Were you near of Wharton's Diamond Warehouse on the night of the 15th? And who was the third <laughs> man who did the blagging at the Bear Huggers Distillery last week? And he had arrested three customers before they caught on. I did enjoy all of that. I like that Ankh Morpork is slowly becoming more and more familiar in terms of like the cast of characters. Like there's still mm. more characters for us to meet in Ankh Morpork, but it's kind of like, oh yeah, like Carrot's not in this book, but of course he's like a big player in Ankh Morpork. So yeah, like, of course people at the drum would know who he is. You know, like, there's all these, like, little things. And, of course, we get, like, a couple scenes with Nobby and Colin and one with Detritus, mm. right, who's outside the, the opera house when, when Cliff steals the organ. We also see Modo, briefly. Yes. Yeah, very Modo briefly. Modo doesn't care what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And we finally meet Glod, you know, the yeah, king Glaude who's cursed him. everything he... Yeah, everything he touches turns to Glod. Yeah, well, I don't think this is the Glod, but I think it's one of oh. the children of Glod. Because remember, uh, Lords and Ladies said that he had like a lot of children, so it's Glod Glodson. Yeah, but I'd like I'd like it to be this guy. Um, that that'd be pretty funny, actually. That's what <laughs> I thought. I was just him. like, oh, it's this guy. And the beggars get introduced here. They're going to become like more mainstay characters. We get a couple scenes with Vetinari. Mm, I really enjoyed the Guild of Beggars when they were introduced, like the the Queen of Beggars in um, mm-hmm. Men at Arms. I all I think I said it in that episode, but like I really enjoy a court of beggars in like a fantasy, like an urban fantasy storyline. It's so cool. 
Yeah, I and like I think that Foul Ron and Coffin Henry and the Duck Man, which just that makes me laugh. Death going like, why do you have a duck on your head? He's like, what duck? Yeah, I don't, that is such a simple joke, but it is incredibly funny to me. Like they're a very good group of people. Yeah, I also appreciate that they say that they send out anti invitations to like Foul Ron and them, where it's like, please do not show up. <laughs> So they won't like and foul old Ron's smell is like a separate entity. Like yeah. Vetinari has to dismiss him and then dismiss the smell. Oh mm. god. Okay, well before we dig right into Ankmore Pork, let's talk about Susan. Susan Stohalit. Susan Stohalit. Which I guess she is a duchess. They don't ever refer yeah. to her that way. She has quite the arc in this book, but I did want to talk really briefly at the beginning of this book. She does have powers, and she seems vaguely aware of them. So Isabel and Mort never really had powers beyond what Mort had when he took on the the death persona. But it seems like some of death's powers have been inherited by Susan in a way that doesn't actually make sense genetically. It skips a generation, doesn't it? she magically inherited her appearance is also interesting too because she has all like white blonde hair with one black streak that goes through it and it's super curly so it stands out from her head which is to me a very obvious referent it's like a reverse bride of frankenstein haircut like because the bride of frankenstein has the curly hair that's all black with the white streak i think it's a great look i think it's iconic 100 out of 100. (laughs) 100 out of 100. On that one. 100 out of 10. She's 16 years old in this, and her view of the world pre-learning that she is Death's granddaughter is very black and white. It's very, like, logical. She doesn't even like fiction because it's just too messy. She doesn't really like poetry. She just, like, she likes logic. She likes history. She likes understanding how the world works. And that's, like, her investment in reality. What do you think about her at the beginning of the book? And what do you think about what learning that she's death's granddaughter and taking on the responsibility of death does to this worldview? At the start of the book, like, I mean, she's kind of like the, she seems like cut straight from the cloth of, um, like, eerie otherworldly children, you know, where it's like, are they haunted? Are they not? Yeah. Which I I like. It's a good trope in fiction. I think... Learning that she's Death's granddaughter doesn't really change things insofar as it, like, solidifies things. Where she's like, oh, okay. And, like, I mean, I know who Susan Stohalit is, because we had, like, talked about her beforehand. But I feel like if I went into that blind and was like, oh, she's a bit weird, and then the reveal of, like, she's Death's granddaughter, it would solidify it. It'd be like, oh, that makes sense. So I don't think it's, like, a a big thing necessarily it's a big thing if you're in that situation be like oh i'm great that's granddaughter uh okay but yes yeah i just i think it's interesting that at the beginning of the book she has this preoccupation with fairness and when she is confronted with the concept that death is ultimately not a fair thing to happen like good people die bad people live she's very upset about it And she keeps saying it's not fair. And then at the end of the book, she realizes that the universe isn't fair. Like, there's actually a line that says, like, if you tell the universe 
that it's not fair, the universe will be like, okay, what of it? Like, that's not really how it works. So it seems almost like she has to come to the there's no justice, there's only me concept on her own in this book. She needs to approach it from the other side. Her arc is really good. It's really satisfying. And the fact that it like dovetails really nicely with Death's Existential Crisis is always a plus. Because at the beginning of the book, the... <laughs> The the schoolmistress, what's her name? I can't remember. Miss Butt. Um, Miss yes. Butts is like <laughs> disturbed by her. She's disturbed by her not just because of the the magical like fading away. I love what she has to write down. Like, remember, you're talking to Susan Stoley, but like she's also disturbed by the fact that when she told Susan about her parents' death, Susan just kind of took it very calmly, which we know is something that happens. Like sometimes you can't absorb everything right away when it comes to like a traumatic or like you know, grief doesn't happen linearly right and it doesn't happen the same way to everybody i think that susan in this book even though she doesn't specifically mention her parents all the time that she is also grieving her parents death and trying to make sense mm. out of it from the point of view that she has which is good people shouldn't die and like why did this happen? Especially if my grandfather's death, why did this happen? And death has to tell yeah. her like, well, yeah, I could have saved them, but that's not what they wanted. They didn't want to be immortal. Both her and death are going about grieving the same event through two like rapid or two vastly like opposite like methods, you know, where like death is, Death is grieving by trying to forget because he knows that there's, like, nothing really he can do, that there's no justice, only him. Whereas Susan doesn't know that, and so she's stuck with, like, yeah, you know, with remembering. Literally, like, the whole book is her memories of Death's domain coming back to her. No, I, I just, I think it's really interesting that there's two, you know, like, like you said, grief doesn't happen laterally, but it also doesn't, like... It also doesn't happen in the same way for everyone. Uh, no, like it's no, not of course not unilateral either. Right? Yeah. I just I think it's interesting because Susan is a very like not emotional character. Like she's a very calm. Like on the outside, she's very calm. She's very practical. She's very like down. Not down to earth. Uh, that's the wrong word. But like she's very. No nonsense. That's the word I'm looking for or phrase I'm looking for. No nonsense. She's a very no nonsense character. And so, like, I don't think she always admits to herself that that's what she's doing. Grieving, I mean. Yeah. But she is working it out in the best way that she can. Like, this whole book is about, like, she wants to save Buddy because she doesn't think that it's fair that her parents died. Like, it's it's very interesting to me. That that's not what we're told. That's not, I don't think she would admit that because it would be admitting like sentimentality on her part, but it is what she's doing. She, yeah. It's like, she's trying to justify, well, they didn't get saved, but if she can save at least one person, then surely it proves her hypothesis that good people should live. I think it's interesting too, when she finally does accept that this is real and that death is her grandfather and that all these supernatural things exist, her approach to it is very much the same approach that she had to the school, right? Where it's like, 
well, this is silly and it shouldn't be like this. Like, like she believes it, but she thinks that it's ultimately very disorganized and silly. And she has this like very pragmatic approach to magic. Like she doesn't suddenly like get lost in the eldritchness of it. She's just like, oh, okay, this is just like another thing. And it should be approached logically just like any other thing. (laughs) She doesn't have time for nonsense. No, no time for that. I felt like a lot of her story also had some real Alice in Wonderland vibes, especially her in Death's house where she's like wandering around this house and all of these rooms are like too big for their contents. And like, like there's a lot of playing with size in Death's house and, and perception. And to me that yeah. like having a, having a young girl, I mean, she's 16 wandering around like a place like this. It just gave me some real like Alice in Wonderland labyrinth type of vibes even like the where she wants to get like a dress or something from the wardrobe and then it has to come to the realization that the decor is going to be like bone themed but like that whole like trying on the clothes and can i get one that looks more like this feels very alice in wonderland or like hallucinogenic even Right, and like all, not all the furniture is functional. Like Death made a bed, but the covers are like part of the bed. Yeah, uh, he's trying. Like, he's trying not his all best. that works. Oh yeah, he understands how it should work in theory. He just doesn't doesn't he get just it. Has the practical knowledge, yeah. But it's very weird that like at one stage, knobs and colon can see her on the on the horse, and mm-hmm. they have that same moment that like. Uh, Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax have when they're going down the st- they're going down the stairs. Not Granny Weatherwax, um, Magra and Nanny Og in Tis Abroad, where they pass by someone and then they realize that it's death. But like they can see, the- there's constant references to the fact that they can see death throughout this book, which I think is interesting. Then we get the funny like Keith death, the death. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of that that type of thing in here. Because, yeah, most people, even when they see him, like, their eyes go away. And that happens to Susan, too, right? Like, Buddy is the only one of the band who can see her. Ridcully can see her if he's, like, really paying attention. I loved the conversation between Ridcully and Susan. Both times. One at the show, and then the one when he has Ponder Stippens and the students summon her for the rite of Ashkente. Oh, it wouldn't be a book with death in it and the Unseen University if they didn't try the <laughs> ritual of Ashkente. H- how many times does this happen? This has happened like basically every book. Almost. I mean, a lot of books, every time there's some kind of thing happening on the Discworld involving the Unseen University, they generally summon death first. They're like, well, what's the deal with this then? And that's like, uh, I don't know. Why are you asking me? Except for the time where he shows up and it's like, Rincewind. It's Rincewind. And they're like, what? And he's like, it's fucking Rincewind. (laughs) Susan and Red Coley are such, like, uniformly singular characters that seeing them interact in this way, I think, is just hilarious. They both have this, like, really singular, like, one-track mind. where You know, like, they they describe Red Coley's mind like a train on a tracks, and it keeps going, but it's very hard to direct the train. Whereas Death's able to, like, focus on other things, as evidenced by, like, the fact that he just, like, gets a new hobby every book. (laughs) That's another really relatable thing. I'm just constantly taking up hobbies. Like, like, 
I can't be stopped. I think it's funny when Binky takes Susan to the curry place, the curry takeout place. Yeah. They have like death's order ready to go. I like that. I like that because that's where that's where death learns about happiness in more. Right. Yeah. Where he asks, like, what's this feeling? Oh, it's happiness. Like that seems to be the first time that he's ever experienced the feeling. And so in the middle of his existential crisis, having Susan go back to that, uh, like, you know, it kind of helps her arc of, like, understanding death as he is, instead of as, like, how she wants him to be. Hmm. Especially because, like, how tied into the ending of Mort this is. Yeah, I like that because it is, there is a great deal of this book that is about Susan accepting death even though they don't actually talk in the present until the end of the book like accepting him Mm. for who he is and then also accepting herself for who she is and the fact that she's not human and that she can't view the world the same way that she used to and that's really uncomfortable for her Mm. so before we get into the musical stuff i do want to talk about some supporting characters, two that we've seen before and one that's new to this book. So the death of rats has a bigger role in this book than I think we've seen in previous books because he is the one who goes to get Susan, who tries to explain what's going on to her to get her to come and take on the duty of death. And of course, she can't understand him in this book. And so he goes and gets Quoth the Raven, who is a new character. They make a great team. I'd love to see an animated spinoff about them. <laughs> I expect an Edgar Allan Poe reference whenever a raven shows up, regardless of whether it happens or not. I'm just like, are they going to? Because sometimes they'll have it where like a character will say nevermore just as a... You know, just as like a reference. But I like the fact that he, um, the raven is like, don't say the N-word, and he means nevermore. <laughs> is that a slur for ravens i don't know i mean i've never sp- i've never spoken to a raven um funnily enough i mean maybe it's like how i'm from kansas and i hate it when people are like oh where are you from, You're from kansas I'm like, I'm from K- yeah and so people are what like the where fuck? are you from yes i am originally from kansas i grew up there near lebanon question mark no near leavenworth so ah. a little north of Kansas City. I know where Lebanon is, though. Yeah, there's like Leban. The three places I know in Kansas are Lebanon, Leavenworth, and oh fuck, there's another L one that I've just briefly forgotten. No. What do you know about Leavenworth? There's a prison there, isn't there? There's a military prison. Yes, exactly. That's the only reason why you would know where Leavenworth is. Yeah, they reference it in A Few Good Men, and that's how I know it. <laughs> Yeah, almost every gangster movie or like that kind of thing, they're like, we're sending you up up to Leavenworth. There's a few prisons there. There's the military prison. There's also a supermax there. And I hate it when people are like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from Kansas. And then they, if they just hear the I'm from Kansas part, they're like, oh, like the Wizard of Oz. You're not in Kansas anymore. Ha ha ha. Or if they say, if I say I'm from Leavenworth, Kansas, they're like, oh, like, did you escape out of prison? If you ever feel like that is a, like, 
funny joke that no one has ever told me before, please stop. Like I have heard those jokes so many times about where I'm from. So maybe that's like that with Quoth. People have made yeah. the Nevermore joke too many times. Yeah, it's Lawrence, Kansas that I was thinking. Oh of. yeah, Lawrence is fun. I actually Lawrence is a nice little town. Although the capital city, now that I'm thinking of it, is like Topeka, isn't it? Yeah, it's Topeka. Lawrence is fun. Lawrence had one of the best used bookstores I've ever been to. This is getting off topic, but I have to say this used bookstore was amazing because it was like this tiny little building with books just like floor to ceiling. There were stacks of books in front of the in front of the shelves. And it was run by this old man. He was probably like in his late 60s and then later, I think early 70s. And he just would come to this bookshop, open it up and sit in the front with his golden retriever sitting next to him, and he would just read books all day. And that that was what he did, was he just wanted to read and hang out with his dog and talk to people about this is books. The, that's the life. Yeah. He gave me a copy of uh, a Robert Browning collection for free. Ooh. It was awesome. Yeah, he was like, do you like Robert Browning? Because I was looking at it, and I was like, yeah. He's like, you can have one. All right. What did you think about Albert in this book? Oh, Albert in this book has my whole heart. I love Albert. I was kind of unsure about him in uh, more because he's cast in a, a more villainous role, you know, where he's like trying to stop Morton Isabel from like seeing the, the lifetimers and stuff. And then they discover that he's actually Alberto Malik. He seems very villainous in that. Right. But that's mainly because he's, like, antagonistic towards the protagonists. But this one... Death and, and uh, Albert are living in a QPR, and neither of them are willing to... Neither of them are willing to uh, acknowledge this fact. <laughs> this is my headcanon. Rincewind and Death, enemies to lovers. And then Albert and Death, QPR, that's unacknowledged. I mean, because Death doesn't really need a caretaker for the house. No, it's he not doesn't. Like he eats. He yeah. doesn't. And what's gayer than that? Oh, <laughs> they lived in the same house outside of time for like eternities. Oh, historians are going to say they were caretaker best friends. Fuck off. No, they're gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That is one of my favorite things where I was like, what they could have they been doing in this picture? And I'm like, it's literally two women sharing a bed. What do you mean? What could they have been doing in this picture? Yeah, I'm oh, sorry. God. Exercise a degree of critical thinking there. Yeah. Can't believe I have to lead you to the door on that one, scholardom. Uh. <laughs> Albert was interesting in this, too, because he does seem a little antagonistic towards Susan. He's worried about death for a good chunk of this book. And when Death disappears and Susan shows up, he rightfully is very wary of letting her take on the role of Death because she doesn't really know anything about it. But he is also the person that seems to know the most about what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that he takes it on himself to go out and look for Death, even though the, that will kill him. I really hope there's not another book where he does that because I don't think I could handle it if... Albert goes out on his lifetime because he's only got 39 seconds left. Right. That was all they could um, find. But also, like, I mean, if she takes over the death role, then, I mean, maybe there's a fear that the death he knows 
it you know won't be around anymore that it'll just be like new you know like the same way like in the right. sandman comics where where daniel becomes sandman where he is he is dream of the endless but he's not the same dream of the endless oh yeah i hadn't even thought about that connection but that's right like they all exist as concepts and there has to be one of them but it doesn't have to be the same one because the same thing happened to despair right is that the despair that we meet was not the original despair yeah, and of course, like, Destruction left, and then, oh, what was Delirium before she was, de- Delight became Delirium, Delight. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, so. Oh, you, 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 of course, would know. Yeah, there's, I wrote a large chunk of my thesis on Delight becoming Delirium. Is there anything else you want to talk about when it comes to death before we move into the music section? Yeah, it's kind of related to it. There's a quote where death, like, plays the guitar. Um, and it's another one where, like, it's just, like, Pratchett's use of language is fantastic. Where he's, like, you know, he plays the electric guitar at the end in the most, like, yes. nostalgia, most nostalgia-tinted, like, neon-lish. You know, like, you could see that in a film now. It'd be, like, a Ready Player One-style challenge or something, you know. But it says Death played the empty chord. Like, holy fuck. What a line. The fact that death like takes over the situation and like plays the empty chord and basically tells like the music like, okay, like you have to, you know, change time and, and fix it or, or I'm just going to let the universe end. Like basically death bluffs the music, right? The rock music <laughs> it's a, yeah. into fixing it, which I thought was interesting. But then we get this really cool thing at the end, at the very end of the book where death is writing out but he hears this little voice in his head that says, so you're a rebel, little death. Against what? And I wasn't sure what this, is, what this was supposed to be referencing. I couldn't tell if it was like an internal voice of deaths or if it was Asriel himself, who's like, so you're a yeah. rebel, little death. It's obviously supposed to be a reference to rebel without a cause and, you know, just kind of like the rebelliousness of rock and roll music in general. But I do think it's interesting that this death is kind of a rebel. Like, he is making his own rules now. Like, he is following the rules, but he's, like, doing the right thing, not the thing that is expected. Yeah, I thought that was, like, an internal monologue, but as well, it would make sense if it's Azrael. Because, like, death bargained with something which wasn't his. Like, he's not the death of universes. It, you know, like, Azrael, like... Because from Reaper Man, we understand that, like, the death of rats functions differently to, you know, regular death now, where, like, all of the rodent deaths are covered by death of rats, and death doesn't do that. So, like, the life and death of the universe is covered exclusively by Azrael at the top. He has the clock, right? Which death has the smaller version of that clock. So it could be that. And then also we do have another um, Rebel Without a Cause reference earlier on where they say Rebel Without a Pause. so it could be that the little death thing made me think that's it was asriel because i don't see death referring to himself as little death i mean i guess he could but yeah it'd be odd would would asriel speak in that typeface oh that's a good point i don't know maybe it was an i mean the auditors yeah i like that he's like so he ignored it and rode towards the lives of humanity they needed him like, there, there we are returning back to the Reaper Man has to care about the crop, the souls. But now Death has realized through the events of Reaper Man and Soul Music that 
caring actually makes him better at his job and that the rules following the rules is not always always the right thing to do like sometimes you have to treat the rules like guidelines which is what he tells susan Mm. all right let's talk about music with roxanne music with roxanne (laughs) you don't have to leave your light on roxanne there are so many references to music, but especially rock music, all sorts of music in this. We probably, we, it would take us hours just to go through all of them. What were some of your favorite references? Thank you, said the Grateful Death. Um, <laughs> yes. I I enjoyed that immensely. I'm trying to find now other ones. Obviously, there's, like, the Buddy Holly, which I appreciated when it was translated, but then I was like, oh, it's just Buddy Holly. Ooh, wee, ooh. And Cliff Richards, too, right? Isn't that what the what Cliff's name is? Which I think you probably know more about Cliff Richards than I do. I mean, I have a vague understanding of Cliff Richards. Like, he's not someone that I listen to an awful lot, but, like, I have heard... I have heard some Cliff Richards songs. We don't talk anymore. Um, there's a song about like a guitar that I'm trying to find the name of. I have it on my iPod, but my iPod is dead. Wired with Wired for Sound, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had an album by the same name as well. Wired for Sound is one of my top ones. There were some of these that I knew right away, and then some of them because Sam knows much more about music and like the history of music than I do. That I was literally like, "Oh yeah, okay." Like, what is this a reference to? And for the most part, she knew what they were. But Cliff Richards is someone that I'm vaguely aware of, but don't know all that much about. Pathway to Paradise is obviously Stairway to Heaven. They do the Wayne's World thing. They do the Wayne's World thing where they're like, "No one is allowed to play this song." Um, they point like you know they pointed the sign. Stohalit lace and Buddy saying hello baby is a direct reference to Chantilly lace. I I also like the sex drugs and music with Roxanne. Well, one out of three ain't bad. That's a, that's a meatloaf reference. And then also the Will Wood song "Sex Drugs Rock and Roll." It's a quintessential like phrase, um, and it gets the uh, it gets the Terry Pratchett treatment, which I appreciate. I also liked the the Death Leopard. That they're trying to make pants out of, but then also like when he's when Crash is mauled by the leopard, he says a glove. Whoever heard of a serious musician with a glove? Which is clearly a reference to Michael Jackson and his signature glove. Like, there's just so yeah. many of this. Like Susan yells at Buddy, "Don't fade away." They have Cavern Deep and Mountain High, which is a reference to River Deep and Mountain High by Ike and Tina Turner. Anarchy and Ankh Pork. I like that, like, hold on, this was 1994, right? Yes. And obviously, like, It's Better to Burn Out Than Fade Away is a thing that's in a lot of songs. It's in a, The original one is in a Neil Young song, isn't it? I think so. But obviously then it's in, there's a, it's in a Death, or it's in a Death Leopard song, but also it was in a, yeah, actually, it, it was a phrase used in Kurt Cobain's Suicide Note. Um, and he right. died in 1994. So I wonder, was that on like the cultural consciousness? Kurt Cobain passed away in 1994. So it's doubtful that Pratchett would have known about that while writing soul music because he probably wrote it in 92 or 93. I think that honestly, with the especially with the carriage crash at the end, that 
Terry Pratchett was probably thinking more about the plane crash that claimed the lives of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper, which is what Amer- the song American Pie is about. He's probably thinking more about that than he is about suicide, more about the idea of all these musicians dying in a tragic plane crash and how like they live on yeah. through their music. And that's supposed to be like the legend that this music is trying to repeat in the carriage crash. I mean, whoever it's about, either Buddy Holly, um, you know, Kirk Cobain, ja- James Joplin, um, I, like right. there's, there's another person I'm forgetting, but like you know the whole like they 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 die young. The the other one that I really thought was interesting is that Buddy's song "Sioni Bada" is "Bada" is Welsh for "Be Good," so "Sioni Bada" is Johnny Be Good, which is hey, I know that one. Yeah, it took me a while to get that one. That was a Back to the Future reference. I'm sure that all of our listeners picked out different references. I'd love to hear about them on Twitter because I just I find this fascinating. But those are some of my favorites. You know the way where sometimes in these episodes I'm like, I'd like to see a Discworld book in modern day. Like, like you know, if, if Terry Pratchett, you know, rest his soul, were still alive and writing Discworld books, what it would reflect now but i feel like i wouldn't want to see a version of soul music today like it only it only works with this kind of like scene like imagine that but it's like the references are to like i don't know ed sheeran or doja cat or something (laughs) it would be a very it would be a much much weirder book and especially like just because the music landscape is so bizarrely different the other one that I forgot to say, too, is that and Terry Pratchett actually acknowledged this in an interview at one point. Uh, the re- one of the reasons he picked Susan to be Susan's name is because of the rock and roll influence, because girls like Susan, he said, usually take on nicknames like Susie, like Susie and the Banshees. So yeah. there's, there's also that reference as well. What did you think of the band? So Imp, who becomes Buddy, and Cliff, and Glod, and very briefly the librarian playing the piano, but he leaves before they become famous. I thought it was an interesting dynamic. Like, I'm trying to find good things to say because I wasn't, like, too gone on this side of the the plot. But their dynamic is really fun, especially when they're just, like, breaking into places and stealing shit. (laughs) Obviously, that's rock and roll, baby, but... The whole, like, they're they're essentially just being gay doing crimes, which I really appreciate. And I also, there's a really funny moment where they're, like, where they're told they can't come into uh, the city, you know, because they're, they're not allowed. They're not allowed in. No, no, no traveling musicians are allowed in. And then they're like, oh, we'll pay the musicians tax. Actually, we're going to pay it ahead of time. They're like, are you bribing the guards? No, we're doing our civic duty. We're paying our taxes. <laughs> What did you think specifically of Imp, who goes by Buddy? I was reminded by a friend of their pod, Lazi. I mean, I sort of knew this beforehand, but then Lazi like really, really brought it into perspective for me that Imp and the place where he's from, Plamedos, yeah, is Wales, and he's supposed to be very Welsh, which is why he has the double L's in everything. What did you think about mm. that and the way that they keep calling him Elvish? Like they're like, you look a little Elvish, which is supposed to be a pun on Elvis, but it also feels like it's actually a real thing that they keep describing him as. It's always good to see representation of, like, the home countries and stuff. Not to, like, defend the Brits or anything, but, like, when you see people from the UK represented in media a lot, it's a very specific type of accents and stuff. 
and now we've kind of gotten a bit more of that with regional broadcasting and stuff, but like a lot of the characters in Terry Pratchett speak with like West Country accents and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I know this is this isn't really answering your question, but this is something you know like you don't see an awful lot of, and he takes time to like represent the way they speak. So like having someone who's quite clearly Welsh and speaks with that kind of you know like the I don't know whether lilting is the correct word for the way he speaks, but like you know when he he puts in double L's in the word where it's clear that um imps like native accent is coming through it's really good to see that kind of representation um in terms of like elvish i i thought that was like a obviously i was like oh that's welsh because i recognize like like the e kellen um looks like welsh one of one of the few phrases in welsh i can say is dilchin var which is it's spelled like d-i-o-l-c-h space y space f-a-w-r which means like thanks a million so I was like, oh, that's Welsh. And so I thought that might have, like, when they said that he looks a bit elvish would be like a reference to kind of like the mythology, like in Wales. Mm-hmm. It didn't even occur to me, um, like you said, that it would be a reference to you look kind of like Elvis. Yeah. Elvis did not die young. Yeah, he didn't. He did not die young. That is true. But but then there's claims that he never died. So I also think that the whole guitar, like this guitar is from the beginning of the universe, right? We we get Susan and the band actually visiting the beginning of the universe, which uh, Rincewind did in Eric, but we get to see like the first power chord that started the universe. And I loved how the book tells us that like the Big Bang wasn't just noise. It was a power chord because noise doesn't create anything, but music is like complex noise. So it can create complex things. What did you think about the guitar and the way that it becomes this like avatar for this eldritch force of creation, I guess? I mean, like it's a bit, um, Hollywood from moving pictures, but, um, the fact that it's tied into kind of like the cosmology of things, like I'm, I'm nearly sure I've said this before. I'm a sucker for cosmology in like fictional worlds and stuff. Like, say what you want about the Elder Scrolls, like the cosmology and that's top notch. It's beautiful art. I haven't gotten very far yet. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. But like the whole thing about this kind of primordial force, where it's like it, it exists for its own sake and it exists to make things, and it wants to like move through people and like get them killed so that they can live on in this really like fucked up kind of moral view is really cool and the fact that like you know it came from the dawn of time i thought that was really cool that was probably like the best part of it was the best part of the band storyline but then like that's where it dovetails with the death storyline so yeah, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Witches Abroad, too. Like, this idea that stories want to happen. Like, they've worn a groove into history because they want to happen a certain way. And so that's kind of what the music is doing at the end, is that it's like, no, this is the way that's supposed to happen. And so even though Susan saves them, it's like, no, it happens this way, where they die. and and But then they live on forever in the music. Anything alive wants to breed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That reminded me a lot of Reaper Man too, like the the mall trying to to breed itself or trying to reproduce. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I like this better. 
I like the music, the yeah. idea of like the primordial music because it's not even that monstrous. It's just, it just is. Monsters mm. from Hollywood were things from the dungeon dimension. They were like Lovecraftian. This is almost just like, it's not good or bad. It doesn't care about concepts like fair or not fair or the lives of people It's much like death in involved. that way. Yeah. Although death has now learned to care, or at least for Susan, he's learned to care, right? It is interesting that yeah. death saves the band without even knowing who they are because Susan asks him to. Yeah, whereas his own family, he's like, well, I could have done something, but like they didn't want to, so I'm going to respect that. That makes me like so emotional, actually. I'm not too invested in, in um, Buddy and Susan's relationship, but like... Oh, I'm not either. The fact that he's still alive, though, and she hears about someone, like, matching his description, and then she's like, oh, well, I gotta go and see him. I was like, okay. Uh, you know, because they didn't really, like, develop it, but the fact that they left it open at the end, where it's like, this could be a thing that happens, I was like, okay, that's a, you know, that's a thoughtful and mature way to do it. Sure. <laughs> let's let's say. I, I'm not invested. I, I, I Neither think it was am unnecessary. I. Uh, like, I mean, I don't know whether Buddy is going to come back, but it's like, you know, if you're invested in it, you can imagine that they went and they got together and they lived happily ever after. And if you're not, you're like, oh, okay. What did you think about Ridcolly, Ponder, and the Wizards? Like, we get to finally see inside the high-energy magic building where Ponder and the student wizards, the grad students, are working on their experiments, and Ridcolly has to enlist them to figure out what's going on because... The faculty are all, like, under the sway of the music. It's vindication for Ponder, I guess, for the, like, the fact that no one really, like, especially Ridkali, you know, didn't take that seriously. They, you know, thought they were all just, like, dotting off. Yeah, it's very much like, what really do the wizards in this book accomplish? <laughs> um, Nothing, really. Right. Which I think is very funny, because they're meant to be, like, this authority... Especially in Ankh Morpork, where it's like, if there's a problem and if it's kind of supernatural in nature, they're there. But, like, they don't really help, like, in a tangible way for things to be accomplished. It's just, like, oh, I, like, I mean, the, the, the biggest help, I think, is the um, librarian building the monster of metal, which functions <laughs> uh, as the motorcycle for death. I love that the librarian is a fan. He's just a fan of the arts in general. He liked the moving pictures. He loves the music with Roxanne. He goes to the theater. Yeah, he loves theater, but it has to have custard pie throwing segments in it. He's a big champion of the arts and of books. He's just, yeah, all around good, good guy, the librarian. All around good guy. Ook, ook. Ook, ook. And I also thought it was interesting that we get back to the old science versus magic divide here because Ponder and the, the grad students are clearly doing something that is more akin to science or at least a scientific examination of magic than Ridcoli, who just does not understand their worldview because it's just he was raised with more of it's like an Eldritch version. Yeah. So I think this is going to be important because. It it connects what we were talking about with Rincewind, you know, how he wished that things were more scientific instead of magical on the Discworld. It connects that attitude towards the emergence of steampunk in a traditional fantasy world. We've already started to see that in these books, but it's going to become more and more prominent as we come around yeah. um, into the later books. We also get the Discworld's first computer. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, yeah. A portable portable rune circle called a, a, a knee top or something right 
Well, there's the knee top, but then there's also the giant ant contraption where you can put in the numbers at the beginning and they add up the numbers. And Ponder says, I think we're going to add to it and it can add higher and higher numbers and do more complex mathematical things. That is basically what a computer was originally, was like a calculating. It does com- computations, yeah. But even the, the machine in the mended drum, like, it's quite clearly an electronic machine, but it's like a big water-powered one. I, I think just to return really quickly to your point about Ridcully, not even that he's like... Like, I mean, because a lot of them are raised on that kind of eldritch old magic, but also like, I mean, Ridcully did his thing and then he fucked off for a while he's like well i'm done with magic and then just lived right. off the land so he's very like salt of the earth type thing so i feel like when he's confronted with quantum and like what that represents he kind of like can't parse that because he's lived so at least this is my reading anyway don't take this as like word of god or anything but like <laughs> I, I don't know it's just like it's so antithetical to like his I lived out in the countryside, I did whatever, I go on runs, and I do all this hunts and stuff, and they're talking about, like, parallel, like, even the the conversation in Lords and Ladies, where Ponder tries to explain how parallel universe works, where one of them, maybe he got married to Granny Weatherwax, um, like that, he just, he physically can't wrap his mind around it, because it's like, he's too, he's too simple, but again, like Carrot, he's not simple in a way that means stupid. I mean, this is a generational thing, right? Yeah. So two more things before we get into our wrap-up section. There are two references to future books that get made into this, which is interesting to me that he's already like doing like the tease for a future book. One is the Hogfather tease. I was like, I don't know about them. But then you said Hogfather. And I'm like, oh, yeah, the Hogfather. Yeah, the Hogfather. Yeah, so we get the Hogfather as a holiday explained in this book in a footnote or two. And it, it comes up a couple of times because Susan is like, well, the Hogfather can't possibly be real. And they're like, well, actually. So we do get we do get that reference. The other reference we get is a little bit more subtle. And I would not have gotten it the first time that I that I read this. But there is a reference to Dorful, the golem. So it's like, I know a golem, Mr. Dorful, down in Long Hogmi. And uh, one of the other ones is like, oh, he's a golem? I had no idea. So we haven't talked about golems in the disc world so far, but they will become a prominent part of Ankh-Morpork. And Mr. Dorful is a, one of the main characters of Feet of Clay. So we do get like a little tease here of a character who will become important later. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you were saying about like Ankh-Morpork is getting more familiar and not just with what we've seen before you know like Ankh-Morpork right. is rapidly like picking up the place where it's like this is a uh, like a real living world and just like you know if you walk into any city like I mean even if I go to Dublin which I've spent three years of my life living in I don't know what's going on the I wandered through a random field today and there was just a circus tent set up for huh. no apparent reason yeah, exactly. Where it's like, I don't know what's going on. Like, you'd think they would, you would see that there's a circus in town, but no. That, that, like, that's what it is. You know, like, someone will just make reference to a book that hasn't come out yet. Oh, yeah, and that makes sense to me. Like, it's not like a Marvel post-credit scene where you're supposed to be like, oh, my God, they're doing this character next or whatever. It's just like little things that it's like little world building things that are like, you know, these are here. We're going to explore them later. Yeah, there's a difference between world building and like 
deliberate, like, teasing the way that the MCU does it. Like, Terry Pratchett does yeah. it the correct way. Like, the Discworld is one of the few share universe, shared universes that I can abide. I think it's because it feels cohesive. Yeah. Some of the other ones are um, The Cosmere by Brandon Sanderson, Stephen King's universe, and the Kaijuverse, because Godzilla Godzilla is a giant lizard that shoots lasers out of his mouth. You know, like, once you accept right. that the premise is inherently ridiculous, anything goes. <laughs> anything could happen. I yeah, love Godzilla. Exactly. I love kaiju movies, so I'm I'm good with that. I love that stage of kaiju films where all of the, the, the villains were, like, large stretch of them were just, like, Aliens who wore trench coats and sunglasses inside. The people from the Planet X. Yeah, I love that movie. That movie is great. Mm. The one thing that I will say that I don't like, it was the only thing that I just like was like, no, try again in this book, is that the word sissy, which is a terrible word, is used twice in the space of five pages. Rid Coley uses oh, it first. Yeah. I could perhaps forgive that of Rid Coley because Rid Coley's supposed to be like an old like British person. I don't like it, but I could perhaps see it as being justified as part of his character. But then it gets used by the narrator a couple of pages later to describe like someone falling over. And I, I don't know why. It was 1994. That word does not need to yeah. be used. I mean, the word never needed to be used. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you get what I'm saying. Like, by this point, like, people knew that this was an insulting word to gay people. Like, I don't, I don't know why this word isn't here. This book was long and had a lot of moving parts, but I actually think it's pretty simple when you boil it down to those parts. All right. I didn't keep track of death sightings because that would have been ridiculous considering this is a death book. (laughs) But uh, Mm. I think we mentioned a lot of really good stuff with death in this. I mean, I was going to have you say your favorite scene with death in it, but I think maybe you've already covered that because you really liked the scene with the guru on the mountain. Yeah, I thought that was fun. I, I enjoyed the the scene with the beggars, and then obviously, you know, like, kind of your poor granddad have a kiss on his head. Oh my god. Like, that's, yeah. Uh, that's up there with, like, best Discworld moments. Ugh. That scene, though. Yeah, I loved that. I also liked when, he's not technically in these scenes, but I actually really liked when Albert was telling Susan about, like, her coming to visit, and, like, you know, how Death laughed at her like when she like figured something out with the tub and like i you know i just it was really cool like just describing those memories of susan like coming to death's house and death trying so hard and making the swing and yeah that i liked all of that hmm no no mention of sort nor its pyramids uh-huh. disappointing disappointing The first footnote in this book is actually on page two. It's actually before the beginning of the book, because this book has, just like Lords and Ladies, a very brief introduction called The History, which is supposed to remind us of what happened in Mort and who Isabel is and like what all happened there. But there is a footnote in that history. But if it is true that the act of observing changes the thing which is observed, footnote, because of quantum... It's even more true that it changes the observer. Which is, of course, a reference to the observer effect from physics, which is, I think, supposed to tell us that death is changing, right? Like, actually adopting a family in this way didn't just satisfy his curiosity, it actually changed him as an entity as well. Yeah. We didn't actually, before I ask you what your favorite footnote was, uh, we didn't actually talk about the, the beginning of this book, which I loved, because... 
Lords and Ladies begins with where does it start and soul music begins with where does it finish? I thought that was a really interesting like symmetry between those two. Like where where's the beginning of a story? Where's the end? Mm, is that why you've chosen to do these books back to back? I didn't choose to do them this way. That was just a happy accident. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll take credit for it. Yeah, this whole podcast is just marked by like moments of accidental genius on Taz's part. <laughs> appreciate that i do i do what was your favorite footnote i quite liked um troll gambling is even simpler than australian gambling one of the most popular games is one up which consists of throwing a coin in the air and betting on whether it will come down again <laughs> like it's it's short it's funny yeah but also just the fact that it's like it's simpler even than australian gambling will it come back down who knows i mean on the Discworld, perhaps it won't you don't know maybe if it's a magic coin, it would Maybe. fall very, very slowly. Because as we know, when light hits a magnetic or m magical field, that it slows down. This is a thing we were told yeah. like most Discworld books. What was your favorite footnote? During the rite of Ash Kente with Susan and the wizards, she observes, wizards were rumored to be wise. In fact, that's where the word came from. Footnote. From the old wizars, literally one who at the bottom is very smart. Wizards mm. are smart asses. The Discworld is telling us that the word wizard means smart ass. I enjoyed that. Wiz arse. I enjoy a good etymology joke. Yeah. This one's real, but I like that it's like a pointed joke. Do you know where the word senator comes from? Uh, or senator or senate. It comes from the Latin root word senex, which means old man. I like that. Yeah, it's Was pretty it good. Was it an insult originally? I don't know. I have no idea. You don't understand me, old man. Yeah, although, actually, the terms Prime Minister and Tory existed as insults before they were ever used as, like, proper political terms um, in the UK. Ah. Yeah, Prime Minister, yeah, Prime Minister was used for someone who was, like, getting a bit uppity. It was like, oh, look who thinks they're a Prime Minister. I am not British. However, I feel like it is a very British thing to take things, to take terms that were at first insults and then just start using them as the name of a thing oh yeah 100 percent. i feel like that's just very british like yeah of course that's what happened that yeah. makes sense to me yeah whereas in ireland we just call each other swears <laughs> what's something that made you laugh out loud obviously i had mentioned i mentioned the um anti-invitations that uh are sent out not so much not so much laugh. There was like a few things at the patrician. Um the patrician was a pragmatist. He never tried to fix things that worked. Things that didn't work, however, got broken. And then it says yes. that he gave unlimited license to throw rotten tomatoes at street uh street theater performers. <laughs> Which like that's the appropriate response. Vetinari's hatred of street performers makes me laugh. Because there's another I think it's in Guards Guards where he, it talks about how he imprisons mimes. Those are the only people who suffer in his dungeons, are mimes. Yeah. He is such a logical, pragmatic person that it's just his irrational hatred of street performers. Just, it's, mm. it's great. I laughed every single time the Mr. Hong thing came up. The, the incident with Mr. Hong. I thought that was hilarious. Like, they never say what happened. Like, do you know what happened to Mr. Hong? Because nope. I don't. Like, he built a takeaway place on, like, an Eldritch site, perhaps, and then something happened. Like, 
but it keeps coming up as a cautionary tale. And every time it comes up, it just makes me laugh. Like both Vetinari and Rid Coley bring it up. We're, uh, I really wish that we had gotten a Discworld book where the threat is like a demon chippers. Um, that would have been pretty cool. <laughs> What's something that made you think? It's about the music that um, Buddy plays near the end. Something that made me think, well, actually, as I'm scrolling through my highlights, it's something that Albert says as well. This is another one. Sometimes he tries to be human, too, he thought, and he makes a pig's ear out of it. Um, we're like, death. he's trying his best to be human. Uh, oh, I found the bit. Yes, he's trying his hardest. Um, the, uh, the lecture in recent runes thumped the crystal ball. The sound is a bit tinny, he said. Get out of the way, I can't see, said the dean. Recent runes sat down again. They stared at the little image. This doesn't sound like music with rocks in, said the bursar. Shut up, said the dean. He blew his nose. It was sad music, but it waved the sadness like a battle flag. It said the universe had done all it could, but you were still alive. I like the thought of existing, like, in the face of the universe, just to spite it. Spite's one of the best reasons to do things. Oh, yes, 100%. I actually had that down as the thing that made me think as well. I like that that's what music can do for you. Because you have this sadness, mm. but music in a lot of ways puts words and feelings. It takes those feelings and it puts words to it, right? Or, you know, that it can take that feeling and say, like, you're not alone. Like, you know, this is a way of expressing that. And yeah, and you've survived, right? You are still surviving. I think that is a very powerful way of describing what music can be and what it can do. And it's such a short section. Like, it's just a couple sentences. But it was like, yes, that is what music is. Yeah. Even if you don't know what the feelings are. Like, I mean, what feeling does running up that hill brackets a deal with God by Kate Bush speak to? I don't know, but it's something like primal inside of me. Right. It speaks to you, right? Yeah. And I... I loved that because like there is a lot of this book that's like, oh, yeah, the music with Roxanne is making people act in all of these like stereotypical, rebellious rock and roll sort of ways. But at the same time, like that stuff was already there. It was just that the music was calling out to it. Right. And that's how I feel like music. I think that's what music does here, too. Like this idea that you can listen to something and it can recognize music can recognize something inside of you and you can recognize that feeling in music. Yeah. And I think that that's really beautiful and really poignant way of talking about how music is so important to a lot of people. So next episode, Rinse Wins Travels and Travails. Ooh. I, I'm very proud of that. <laughs> Continue in interesting times. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find me on Twitter at Spicy Nigel, where recently I've tweeted some life advice. The life advice is this. If you see Elon Musk in a berry shop trying to steal some gooseberries, report that fucker to security immediately. Yes. This is an out of context quote that I said in the car that I thought would work good as a tweet. You can find my podcasts, uh, Hyperfixations and Archive Admirers, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, you can find me on Oxygen.ie on the entertainment section, because now I'm technically a journalist. Uh, I do be writing articles. Yeah, I've written three so far. I did one on the Stranger Things season four trailer, one on the Thor Love and Thunder trailer, and then one which is like why you should listen to Hyperfixations. (laughs) Nice. 
You should. Everyone listening to this should listen to Hyperfixations. Gonna plug that. Yeah, all, you should all listen to episode seven. Um, I heard there's a really good guest on that one. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa, where I have been tweeting a lot recently about how horrible my dissertation is. I love it, but it is a horrible experience at the same time, which I think is the special hell of dissertations. You love the thing you're writing about, but you hate writing about it. You can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. That's at Monkey Backlog. As mentioned earlier in the episode, Nigel should be on an episode soon of Monkey Off My Backlog. In fact, I think you're on the next episode after this episode of Nanny Ogg's Book Club comes out. You're assigning us stuff to yeah. read and listen to, and you're going to interview us about it. I'm very excited about that. And watch also. Yeah. You're reading Sam's Listening. And Andy is watching. Yep. I am so excited to to talk about that with you. Woo. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club, and you can find us on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. Death smiled and pushed aside the magnifying lens and turned away from the disc world to find Albert watching him. Just checking, he said. That's right, master, said Albert. I've saddled up Binky. You understand, I was just checking. Right you are, master. How are you feeling now? Fine, master. Still got your bottle? Yes, master. It was on a shelf in Albert's bedroom. He followed Death out into the stable yard, helped him onto the saddle and passed up the scythe. And now I must be going out, said Death. That's the ticket, master. So stop grinning like that. Yes, master. Death rode out, but found himself guiding the white horse down the track to the orchard. He stopped in front of one particular tree and stared at it for some time. Eventually, he said, Looks perfectly logical to me. Binky turned obediently away and trotted into the world. The lands and cities of it lay before him. Blue light flamed along the blade of the scythe. Death felt attention on him. He looked up at the universe, which was watching him with puzzled interest. A voice which only he heard said, So you're a rebel, little Death, against what? Death thought about it. If there was a snappy answer, he couldn't think of one. So he ignored it, and rode toward the lives of humanity. They needed him. Somewhere, in some other world far away from the disc world, someone tentatively picked up a musical instrument that echoed to the rhythm in their soul. It will never die. It's here to stay. The End <laughs>